0: This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts.
1: Welcome to Energy Sense, the IHS Market podcast, where we explore all things at the intersection of energy and financial and capital markets. As always, Hill Vaden is here with me today. Hill, anything new since the last time we spoke? Um, I am going to mention that Hill and I speak probably five to ten times a day, so <laughs> I'm not What's sure anything new.
2: I heard on the radio today that it is the uh, it is the anniversary of the first Peanuts comic strip. Uh, so that's Cool. Is that
3: like a hundred years? I don't
2: know. I don't know. Uh,
3: that, <laughs> at least 50 or 70 or something. It's,
2: it, yeah, it's got to be, I would think at least in the 50s, just based on the style yeah. of clothes that
3: those kids were That Charlie Brown wears, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's this color combo. Right. Yeah. It's that yellow and brown.
2: It's also the anniversary of Twilight Zone, which is maybe ominous for our forecast. And uh, Kid A, if you want to feel old. So 20 wow. years ago, Kid A was made. Uh, which I still think was a cool album, but now it's like that old guy saying that Steve Miller Band was cool when I was growing up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it was true, and still is.
1: Although yeah, I so worked... I, uh, New uh, I have to say, I, was, I, I worked with a guy, and he had a... I think he was a 10-year-old oh. son or something like that, and he comes into work one day, and he says to me, so my son's really into Velvet Underground. And I was like, what? This is... <laughs> oh. That's incredible. Good for you that your son is into something that isn't, you know, necessarily just on the radio all the time.
2: Was he expressing concern, or was he encouraging? The, the I'm not.
1: I'm not sure. He might have been concerned. <laughs> I, of course, <laughs> thought it was very.
2: <laughs> you got a cool kid.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. Twilight Zone, though. There's, there's maybe, as you said, it's been an ominous sign, perhaps, but it's also perhaps a little bit of fitting. We're, we're here to talk about this week oil. Uh, price formation and potentially some gas price formation chat. But let's be honest, um, by the time we all get going, we might only hit on one of those. We have uh, Karim Fawaz with us and Raoul LeBlanc, who are often guests with Hill and I, and uh, they always bring fantastic banter and knowledge to the table. So we're very excited to have both of you with us again today.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I, I feel like we're in that. It's a good thing. The twilight zone is a good theme here because <laughs> we are in that in terms of oil price, at least for the North American guys, it's, it's, it's clearly, you know, $40 is, is not great. They can't grow. They can't make money, but at the same time, they're in general, not going out of business. Although that's not true for everybody.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, there's a good question for you, Raul. So, okay. Let's just be careful about this. It, it is not that $40 is going to be the new $60, is it? We're not We're not looking at something or other where there's going to be these huge cost rundowns where all of a sudden, once again, shale yeah. oil surprises.
3: No, I, I think we're in a very different situation that, than we were in, in 2015 and 2016 uh, for, for two reasons. Number one is you can't get much more blood from the service sector. Okay. I mean, their, their costs have come down and and at the same time you have seen a, a modest high grading, right? And people are drilling some pretty good wells, but I think 40 is too much. Yeah. And so I don't expect to see the very strong reduction in sort of break evens and, and capital efficiency gains that we, we were lucky enough to have to, to readjust as we move from 100 to 60 or, or, or 55. Some people will do fine. But as a whole, particularly in this new era of discipline, when, when everybody's supposed to be giving money back, it just doesn't leave enough money to, to grow, I, I don't think. And and therefore, the whole price formation mechanism, and Kareem, you can talk to this, that, that has taken place in the last really seven years of U.S. growth like Gangbusters at any at any price, uh, sort of above fifty. I think Mm that doesn't work at forty.
4: Yeah, no, and I would say just from from a global standpoint, I don't think forty works for the global upstream industry as a whole. The same way it doesn't work for the U.S. I don't think it works for the global upstream sector in terms of whether it's IOCs NOCs governments that are dependent on oil revenues so i think that whole side of the oil market ledger does not function at these prices the reason we are at these prices and we're sustaining this environment is to a large extent reflecting both the fact that demand is depressed and will remain depressed until we get out of the covid crisis and that you're you're coming into the end of the year with a lot of inventories on the sidelines so you do have that big weight looming over the market but as you come out of the COVID COVID, kind of think of it beyond the COVID crisis, $40 is not, is not a sustainable price environment. And I don't think the market expects it to be. If you look at forward curves, the back end of the forward curve is showing you that the market is still looking at $50 to, 50 to 60 or $50 to $55 a barrel uh, for Brent as that potential long-term environment. Now, the debate, I guess, is is 50 to $55 today the same as it was 3 years ago given the reactivity of the US and that's where i think we can have a more interesting discussion because i think things are changing there uh, what 50 to 55 did for the US in 2017 and 2018 which was flood the market does it do that again now i don't think so or at least not as much
1: so if we if we think about that if it doesn't do that as much and your assumption is correct then it points to potential for oil markets to have more prolonged periods of upside do you think that we can you know we can go up over the 60 what what kind of you know if we if we're talking to everybody's happy in a range of the 50 to yeah. 60 dollars that that definitely points to how long can we sit in positions in 65 to 85 or positions in 30 to 50
4: yeah i think i think it does set you up for a more constructive environment versus where the market perception was after twenty eighteen. So basically, if you think back twenty eighteen was, it was a very sobering lesson on how the u s. can overwhelm the global system. The problem with the u s. isn't necessarily the reactivity, and Raul makes that argument often, which is the reactivity of the u s in, a, in a, on its own is a stabilizing force rather than a destabilizing force. I think the problem with the u s. was always the magnitude of growth and how far and how much oil can come once that green light, Kind of is, or when the light turns green, and 2018 was very kind of traumatizing in a way for the market because you had you had Iran coming off, you had demand relatively healthy, and still the U.S. managed to really overwhelm the market in a dramatic way over the course of that year and into 20, into early 2019. So I think when you think about the medium term, I guess the the, the discussion is, if that reactivity is less. Is the reactivity gone altogether? Is is the threshold shifted up $5, $10, $20? Where is that next threshold for the U.S.? And secondly, from a magnitude standpoint, what does the green light do when it shows up and how fast? And I think that's still drag, ultimately. So the, the threat of the U.S. on prices on the upside isn't gone. So... If prices do move up to say seventy dollars for WTI, I don't have any. I mean, and Raul, feel free to disagree. I think at seventy dollars for WTI and this and in, in this state of the industry, it will. It might take time to get the system back up and running in growth mode, but you will move back to growth mode. There's just so much yeah. capital coming in. You will,
3: yeah. There, there, there's a lot at that point, right? Uh, yeah. I agree with that, uh, Kareem. So, yeah, I, I like to say. At any given price, they'll, they'll produce less than they would have when they were in total all-out all growth mode. But there is a price at which they can still and will still uh, be able to flood the global market and, and, and give back some money, right? That's, that's the key. Yeah. If they can do that, I think increasingly, a- incrementally, they move uh, each dollar into uh, a higher growth proportion and a lower return portion
2: will they be allowed to do that in the sense that, that I'm picking up that the, the the reason North America was able to grow so quickly during the last downturn is because they took it out of the highs of the service sector yeah and the service sector is not able to go any lower at forty dollars right so, so yeah. if you get back to 70, isn't the service sector going to take that rent? It's a good
3: point. Margin migration is, is going to be a fact of life. At some point, the, the, the service sector will. Now, now the key, de- but again, at any given price, there's less service sector money because the activity level is lower, right? What what drives the service sector is, is the uh, of course, the balance between the amount of service sector equipment out there and the demand for it, right? So if you have sort of restrained demand what really needs to happen, you know, what would it take to get the service sector really back? I think it would be a series of mysterious fires, right? Um, you know, that would actually remove some of the steel that's out there. Yeah. Because what's happening now, and you look at this with the Schlumberger Liberty thing, is okay. Schlumberger now that equipment's not gone; it's just in the hands of somebody who bought it for pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And can now, you know, reoffer it to people at a lower price. Right? What about and labor? that k- keeps margins pressed. Labor will be tough. Labor uh now right now there's pretty abundant labor in the US because yeah. of the because of the covid crisis, right? But increasingly over time it will be hard to get these people back. Yeah. Um and so you're going to have to offer them significant bonuses and and incremental wages to well, to lure them back.
2: potentially on timing, right? That, that if yes. it's 2 years, 3 years out, you exactly. can bring people back, but they're not going to know
3: how well, well yeah grow. then you got the, the the people that weren't there before right and they're gonna have to learn which means you know anytime anybody learns any industrial process gonna be slow inefficient and and accident-prone right
2: which maybe takes the steel off the market maybe we'll see so, so just to, i think the last time Brian, that we had cream on we were talking about negative oil <laughs> and it was much more exciting from yeah. a you know volatility standpoint than it's you know, range-bound within $40 again for as far as the eye can see.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah. Is is that, never say never, but is it safe to say that the excitement is kind of past us and it's more in a range-bound world for, for the near term?
4: I mean, in the short term, it's really symptomatic of the conditions we are in the market. You have a market manager in OPEC Plus that so far as being able to keep physical markets within a relatively managed band. Uh, with some weakness recently showing that there are cracks in that whole in that whole effort, but nevertheless they have managed to keep, in an environment of extremely uncertain demand, you aren't seeing big stock builds. You're seeing modest stock draws around the world, so the system is in rough balance at least for the time being. Obviously. You can't say never, especially in the middle of a, of a health crisis that could uh, turn quite rapidly into another wave of shutdowns around the world where demand collapses again. And you'll be longing for the days of stable $40 oil uh, <laughs> of the summer. So, I mean, I don't I think there is those risks are still very much there. I think what's, what's going to be interesting is as you go through the next couple of quarters, I think markets have realized that this. This is the type of environment we're going to be stuck in until we can work down some of the surplus inventories, surplus spare capacity you have in the system. I think as you get into that process, that will be interesting to see how much prices rally from there and where that next plateau is as you transition out of the COVID-19 kind of crisis and towards what markets see as the medium term band. And that's what's going to dictate a bit. Do you move back into a $50 to $60 world? Do you zoom into a 60 plus world because you're convinced that a supply gap is around the corner just because the US isn't growing? No one has sanctioned any projects for a number of years et cetera, et cetera. The demand that the peak demand fears are overblown or at least they're much slower moving than people and then kind of in, uh, commonly think. I think that's the way you can have that bullish narrative. The problem is, and this brings it back to the US and how the US interplay happens. Uh, how long can that be sustained? I think the, 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 the question is, can you go back to a price formation environment of pre-shale where you're gonna have multi-year bull runs without supply responding rapidly to, to correct the market i don't think you can at least as we stand today looking at the us sector i think you still have some bullets in the chamber to use if prices do overshoot so can yeah. you put the, the shale pandora the, the the close the shale pandora box i don't think so uh, at least here in the next couple of years
3: You know, one question I have, Kareem, or one thing I was thinking about on the way in in this morning was we've been hanging out around 40 bucks. And one of the things that, you know, you and Roger sort of worked on uh, in the past were these cycles. And it, it struck me that Whenever you have a lot of stability, ironically, you become vulnerable to sort of momentum cycles or, mm-hmm. or right. So, so, you know, and, and I wonder if we're seeing one the last couple of days, right, it, where yeah. it's, it hangs around 40 and then all of a sudden it takes a loop and, and maybe yeah. it goes up for a few days, but it increasingly maybe it's going to go down, right, four or five dollars and then come right back up, right? Uh, yeah. As people, the speculators come in and, and take profit, you know, drive it one way, it's like, nobody has a clear conviction on where it should go. And therefore, if it moves, everybody has to follow the, you know, the people have gone long, start to cover. Do you see those short cycles in terms of price formation? Who cares about mm-hmm. the price, but price formation, you see that at, at work now?
4: Yeah, I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that since the start of September. I think the way to think about it is short cycles or short selling cycles were, were very prominent during the the downturn in 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, really. They kind of faded over 2018 and 2019, largely because the market was tightening. So the biggest deterrent to short cycles ultimately is physical markets being tight and OPEC plus market management being such a, being such that it deters any short appetite because if you're on the short side and prices go up, you're sent to make uh, a big loss versus the opposite, which is if you're long, you can just stay long and wait it out. Yeah. Uh, I think the what's happening now is a, is a mini short cycle, I would say. It's within the price band we've been in since the start of the summer. And, and what would be interesting is if you start to see faith in OPEC shake a bit, that they can't keep the physical market tight and that deterrence – that OPEC plus established over the early part of the summer fades, I think that's where you can see more violent cycles, which we had a lot of during the last downturn, where you go from 45 to 32 and back up. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think for the time being, as long as physical markets are, cont- are within a relatively narrow band, I think that likelihood is low. But if you do start to see you know, bigger demand losses, signs that OPEC plus can't manage the market as effectively as it's telling the market it is, uh, i think that's where you can see these cycles come in i think the other thing and the other part of short cycle which is interesting and it fits with the short cycle and the in the physical sense which we think about with the us is how long can we can these price environment last given that the us can respond within two to three quarters so how long can price moves be everything is collapsed in terms of timeline everything is happening faster because if prices go too low you th- you know that the U.S. is going to slam the brakes or going to drop rigs or production is going to start responding if prices go too high, vice versa. So I think that's the other fa- the, the other catalyst, I think, for short cycles is just the nature of the industry is moving faster than it used to. That's a good point. Uh,
3: so,
1: well, go ahead. Go ahead, Brigham. I was just going to say, so Kareem, you mentioned, especially when we're talking about the very near term as we're range bound in this, you know, $40 type level. Mm-hmm. I, what I'm hearing here is that really what's going to be a determining factor during this range bound time period is opec plus right so and and what and demand obviously not, and it's, demand,
4: i mean yeah. it's, uh, demand is really the overarching challenge here and and the uncertainty around demand so it's basically what demand does and then how opec plus responds i think is the is the nexus over the next couple of quarters
1: so are there any price levels that you think that once they're hit we start seeing those cracks with opec plus are are going to start becoming more brutally apparent, you know, for instance, where Russia might say, hold on a second, what, which is what started a lot of this crisis at the beginning of the year, right? So, uh, yeah. I mean, are there, are there sort of, let's call them trigger points or price points that, that we should be watching for that yeah, are, that are th- sensitive?
4: I think it's not really going to be a single price, but it's kind of a price move overall. If you do see prices past $50 a barrel sustainably and hold above that level, which is telling you that the market is tightening quite fast, starting to look beyond the prices, I think that at that point you start to see some of the strategic discussions between Russia and OPEC come back to to, to haunt you in a way. There is still a lot of spare capacity across the group. It's around 8 million barrels a day of oil on the sidelines. So I think as you see, once prices start moving out of this range and into the higher range, I think you're going to see a lot more pressure internally to start bringing back barrels faster. Uh, on the downside, I think as long as prices are below $50 a barrel and we're now comfortably below that level, I think there is still a united front and and a united fear of that demand risk and the risk to, to see prices fall back into the 30s. That's keeping everyone engaged and and at the table. I think that's going to remain, at least for the next coming the couple of quarters, because we don't see that type of tightening that would move you sustainably above $50 a barrel at this stage. That's uh, the, the
2: spare capacity from OPEC plus that would come back first, right? That, that, that I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Ro, Ro, you talked about the signal to drill before, and I would think that a, in the U.S., you're going to need a sustained price of $50. It's going to be a brave CEO that puts crews back to work with two weeks of $50 or four weeks of $50, right? How, how much?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, you, you'll need to see. It. Well, it, more importantly than, than even um, sort of coming to trust the price, I think is actually making some, Real, measurable, announceable headway on things like debt reduction and, and dividends and share buyback and ch- improving your balance sheet, putting you in a better situation. So, you know, people have put put started putting uh, completion crews back to work from the really low level that we had in June. Okay, so that's happening, right? They feel good enough about that, but it's still pretty anemic. And, and we're having a lot of debates with our with our clients about whether the fourth quarter here is going to see steadily improving oil production in the US. And uh, our, our view tends to be that, no, we're not really going to see much in the way of that because there's not much money left in the budget. Everybody wants to hit their budget. Nobody wants to go blow over their budget in a year where prices are, are down. So we'll, we'll see. I had a question to throw out to, um, maybe to Kareem. In your mind, when you think about price formation itself. Mm-hmm. How are people, what's being baked in in terms of the election and in Iran and and, and Venezuela and Libya?
4: I mean, Libya obviously is coming back as we speak. That's been part of the headwinds that we've seen over the past couple of weeks is that some of the Libyan uh, volumes that have been offline are coming back. So, So that's getting priced into the market. I don't think Iran returning is priced in in any meaningful way or a Biden election to a large extent has really started to trickle in. I think it's added to the overall headwinds that we've seen since the start of September. But I don't think you're seeing a big uh, move on on, uh, on fundamentals uh, in, a, on a, in a Biden world or that a return of Iran, Iranian volumes to the market is in the offing. Iran is still a major risk, obviously. It's two and a half million barrels a day of oil uh, sitting on the sidelines, two million plus in production, more than that in exports that could come in relatively quickly if that deal comes back. I think that risk is still there. And I think it's going to affect not just fundamentals in 2021, but also how markets think about that medium term squeeze. If you do get that political barrel layer offsetting the slowdown in the U.S., offsetting the loss of projects elsewhere, does it just ruin it, ruin the upcycle because you're sitting on on two three million barrels a day of spare crude that's going to come back in the next couple of years. And I think that's the balloon and the risk that markets are are to some extent pricing. But I don't think in the short term uh, in any meaningful way and front month prices.
2: So where you, you mentioned the election, which, uh, you know, we had the debates this week and the president came up positive with Covid today. What where where do you see a Biden, you know, if Biden were to win, if it's not priced in, is that bullish? Is it bearish? Um, I guess Iran is baked into that somewhere as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixed picture. It's a, it's a difficult equation. I think the short term from a Nord market, if you take it strictly from a Nord market fundamental standpoint, supply and demand, I think in the short term, it's probably leaning more bearish than bullish, right? It is the move on Iran, the move of potentially easing sanctions on Venezuela, although that physical capacity has been hit pretty hard on net, the supply coming from a, a loosening of the sanctions policy uh, would far outweigh potential demand headwinds from a shift towards greener policies or more climate friendly policies domestically i think and raul can add to that i think our view on biden and he's made it quite clear uh, in in debates and in uh, and in his remarks over the past month or so is he he will not be advocating for a ban on fracking, whatever ban on the industry, whatever kind of regulations on the industry come in, might have an impact on cost, might have an impact on volumes on the margin, but will not change in a very meaningful way the the, the path of production over the next couple of years, the same way it would Iran and Venezuela. So I'd say on net, it's probably net negative uh, for fundamentals in the short term. In the medium to long term, I think it's a mixed bag between negative demand policies, uh, and potentially negative supply policies, uh, overall well Do you agree?
3: Yeah, I would say that, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that people may impute a lot of meaning to the election results in terms of the oil and gas, but uh, beyond Iran, I think yeah. it's a, a bit of a non event in the short term, right? You know, yeah. it will take a long time to get things in place, uh, except maybe for Iran, right? And and policies mm-hmm. and that and passed and funded and all that stuff. It, it's going to take m- multiple years, and frankly, you may not see the impact of, of any you know election until the subsequent election or term uh, of yeah. the president.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ahead. kind of separately, but but looking at some of the investor implications of all of this, uh, I read two reports this week. Uh, one of which, uh, I'm sure, you all are looking at. I guess this was a, I think it was an environmentalist group you know talking about production growth. A lot of the projects are still in the hopper and there's upside risk to production when you look at what's in front of the, the particularly the global majors uh, today. The, the other report was from you know more of a kind of financial advisory type person. And his prediction with, with, with no fundamentals, which he was quick to note, was that energy is going to be the best performing sector over the next 10 years, five to ten years. And his logic was basically when things get this bad and everybody yeah. goes the other way, you, right. you it's gonna surprise it. you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this, right? exactly. this is the black swan. It's a random walk down Wall
3: Street, right? This is a black swan. Yeah. Well, I do feel like um, you know, the rhetoric and the and the pol- and in some ways the policy and the narrative is so far ahead of I go back to consumer reality that Europe is approaching fifty percent in some countries SUV sales. SUVs never were a thing in Europe but now they're getting to be 50% in certain key markets. That's pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, Americans, I look at hybrid vehicles, which came out 15 years ago. I don't know why everybody in the country doesn't own a hybrid, it's, it just makes sense, okay? But it costs, still costs two or $3,000 extra and people don't want it. And so, you know, I look at those and think that that's gonna run into this rhetoric about about this. And, and so I think there's something there, right? Uh, I also do believe in mean reversion. The things that are trendy tend to uh, eventually find their right place, whether it's above, below, or, or close to where they are now. But then you go back to some things that you may have ignored. We ignored energy in the 90s, and then you know it had uh, its big day in the sun in the you know next
4: decade. Yeah, I push back a bit on 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 that. Analogy with the 90s and the 2000s, I think the the parts, some parts have changed in a very, a very dramatic way. I think the debate ultimately for this kind of the cyclical case, which is, you know, this is, we're still in the same down cycle as you come out of this, the loss of investment in upstream, the demand being not as bad as the media portrays it to be in the next decade or as some kind of more conservative forecast put that, that it sets you up for a sustained super cycle. Uh, if you just stay patient enough to wait it out, you'll be rewarded at the end. I think the key difference, though, with the 2000s is a couple of things. But the main thing, the biggest thing, was you were facing an environment of accelerating demand growth globally. So you not just demand growth stayed, but it actually accelerated quite significantly in the in the following decade. Uh, which kind of puts you in that situation. Now we can, we can haggle about SUVs in Europe. We can haggle about uh, whether the peak is in 2030 or 2035 or 2027. But at the end of the day, I think it is a fair assessment to say that the pace of demand growth is decelerating over the next two decades. Like the, yeah. the rate of demand growth will be declining versus what we had especially in the 2000s but also even in the 2010s and the past and the past few years before the covid crisis you're instead of growing a million and a half barrels a day you're going to be growing a million barrels a day 500,000 barrels a day so on and so forth so the treadmill is going to be slowing so the question yes. is can you get the the perception of resource scarcity that you had in the 2000s to come back And that's the part that's more difficult at this stage because, first of all, the U.S. has changed the perception of resource abundance versus scarcity in general. You now have a firm entrenched belief that you have oil available at a certain price if you need it versus in the mid-2000s at a certain point. It was peak oil. It was no projects in the cupboard. It was we haven't discovered enough resource uh, that it put undue pressure on OPEC plus or not OPEC plus at the time. It was OPEC. But OPEC had no spare capacity left. China was growing fast. They didn't have inventory buffers, et cetera. That whole notion of resource scarcity that dominated the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, just isn't isn't there anymore. And can you get that? I think that's the more difficult one to get to. And as long as you don't have that psychological perception of resource scarcity, it's hard to see sustained price upside beyond what we've been talking about earlier is moving from 50 to 60 to 60 to 70 that can it can be done just through the rea- the lower reactivity in the u.s but do you get 80 90 100 the super cycle type prices that people are warning of i think that's still uh that's still a difficult thing to see at this stage at least in my mind
1: yeah and i think i agree with you kareem because when i think about it and it kind of this is another topic to explore in another conversation but that's exactly why we're seeing the devaluing and the pullback in investment in exploration. A resource scarcity isn't really making headlines these days. I think the the fact that we've got a a stable discovered resource base within the US from an unconventional standpoint and even potential unconventional. Hill Hill was chatting with Ukraine I know about you know unconventional opportunities that might be emerging globally as well that, that could have some real running room to them. I find it hard to believe as well that from that how the supply landscape has shifted that we would ever get back to an environment um, where that resource scarcity was driving market momentum.
4: Yeah, I think it's just, you also have a lot of projects around the world. You have a healthy backlog of projects between Brazil, between uh, other regions of the world that were discovered during those $100 years in the, 2000, in the early 2010s, uh, I think, that are still there on top of the unconventional resource. I think you can get back there from an upstream standpoint as you work through that queue, as the U.S. matures and that growth trajectory bends, you can get that supply side potentially perception get there. But the problem is, if you're investing in the market today, and you're saying demand is going to peak eventually sooner or later, whether it's the late 2020s or early 2030s. So you're not you don't have that anxiety of we're going we're heading for a cliff where we'll be able to produce enough uh, oil to meet demand and you're heading for a, for a big squeeze. I think that concern is it's going to take time to to come back, if if at all.
3: Yeah, just thinking about price formation, one of the things that I I do think, and and we're part of this, is that when people think about, okay, the energy transition, I mean, the the, the new fad for 2020 is everybody's making a goal for 2040, 2045, 2035, 2050, right? Very long-term goals about when they're going to hit net zero or or what they're going to do or have this. As if it's going to be some smooth kind of little, you know, incremental transition and each year is going to be just, like last one, except a little bit less or a little bit more. And and I just think that we may have a number of wild cycles uh, <laughs> in the energy side on power, on solar, on cost, on margins, uh, to get there, right? I just feel like the scale of this system is so large and, and generally it would take 50 to 100 years to change. And you know to try to do that in even long-term times, like 20 or 30, is going to create all sorts of dislocations uh for good and for bad uh as we move through
4: so yeah. i i, think, I don't yeah. to, I don't agree with that though i mean i think and that's the big challenge right which is money can flow out a lot faster than industries can turn over than then you know real capital stock can turn over than then demand can transition uh at a yeah. scale that we have and what we're seeing we're seeing now is money is moving moving out and it's moving out fast uh, so that that leaves you in an interesting situation where you're, ca- you're asset-rich, capital-poor. How does that evolve in terms of price formation? How does the market uh, interpret that uh, as you come out of this whole COVID-19 environment? I think that's going to be the next, that's going to be the dominant story, I would say, of 2021, 2022, probably more 2022 than 2021 since we're still going to be recovering at that next year.
2: So given all that, I mean, it sounds, k- Kareem, that you're, I guess taking the other side of the idea that the energy sector, specifically oil and gas, is going to be the best-performing sector in the next five to ten years—that there's just too much demand, concern, and too much available supply.
4: I mean, I don't know about the rest of the sector, so I won't make a call about on a relative performance versus the the rest of the of the economy. But within, I mean. As I started by saying, I do ascribe to the notion that as we come out of this cycle, you are heading into an environment where you could see prices sustainably move into a higher price range and potentially a higher price range than we had in 2018 and early 2019 just by virtue of the transformation of the U.S. shale sector. I think the part I'm less comfortable with at this stage is, is seeing that sustained super cycle type environment where prices steadily Uh, keep rising with with little response from the fundamental side. I still think the U.S. uh, will respond. I still think you have the resources available in the short term. And I think demand, as you said, and as I said earlier, demand is decelerating. That treadmill is getting easier to meet. And in the short term, uh, that's still the driving kind of problem. You won't see that psychological threshold of abundance to scarcity happen, at least not, in my view, in the next couple of years. All right. Well, and
2: Raul, is, uh, I think you're getting called into uh, another meeting. So I don't know if you have any last thoughts, but before we wrap up.
3: No, I think that the, we think we ought to have a, another quick discussion at some point about the, the, the gas, right? So you got oil price formation, uh, which is taking on some interesting new elements. And it's interestingly, the the gas side has been inversely related in terms of. Uh, the overall correlation of prices right uh, in the last couple of years and that may still be the case uh, but finally to gas advantage
2: hope springs to turn. that's
3: right, <laughs> right.
2: Yeah.
1: It, de- it definitely it definitely warrants a, a whole nother discussion for sure
2: <laughs> yeah I think so uh, and, and I know that was you know as we talked about the beginning of the call and you and I were talking five to ten times a day and that was uh, one of our conversations just yesterday so uh, Maybe that's a, a good, call it a cliffhanger for, for the next uh, for another episode.
1: <laughs> that's that's a general cliffhanger. There you go. Yeah, we're just throwing out <laughs> teasers. You know, at the, end of, at the end of this, just to bring all of you listeners back for more. <laughs> Stay exactly. tuned.
2: Well, good. Um, well, thank you. Uh, so, so, so what role had to to walk away? Uh, we were actually taking this call in the same room t- today, which is the first time we've done a podcast in the, the same room since COVID started. It's
1: very modern of you. I.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It is. Um, and our microphone was busted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it all worked out in the end. I hope so. Um, so so thank you, Kareem. Uh, sure. You, you are a, a re- I guess, who's the guy on Johnny Carson that always used to bring zoo animals or wild animals? It was like a regular Jack. <laughs> rather, that, that's kind oh, of a.
1: Jack, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> not to compare ourselves to Johnny Carson, but
4: you but <laughs> are
1: Oh, speak for yourself there, Hill. <laughs>
4: right. a, I'm, a, I'm a friend of the show. I'm a, fr- I'm <laughs> a friend of the show. A close friend of the show. I'm I actually think, friend. Kareem,
1: here's, here's a little bit of insider information. I think your podcast is still our highest rating. Rated. Nice. I think. Um, so you bring the listeners. <laughs> we might uh, have you on more frequently.
4: Happy to join. <laughs> I join whenever, whenever you need me. We can always squeeze. There's always something going on in the oil market, so I'll always have something to say.
1: <laughs> so true. Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, today, and we yeah. will, of Thanks course, having... speak with you soon. Great.
4: Thanks. Great. Thanks, Haley. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks
0: To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energyblog you can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com.
2: This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarket.com forward slash energy.